You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you are a potter, and we... um, say to you tonight that we are the clay. We come to you as your people gathered now under your word, and we pray that you would have your way, that you would mold us and make us after your will. Mold us and make us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray for all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. If you are visiting with us here at Christ Church, if you are visiting a Christian church here for the first time, that's a millennia-old tradition uh, that when on this Sunday when someone greets you with a he is risen that we respond with a he is risen indeed. So a little louder this time, everyone. He is risen. Amen. If you are visiting with us this evening, we're glad you're here. Welcome. There are many folks in this room, myself included, who would love to get to know you uh, after this service, throughout the week, uh, to hear about your life, to answer any questions that you might have about Jesus, answer any questions that you might have about our church. Uh, You just heard Michael read a well-known story about Jesus, but it's a story that most of us wouldn't necessarily consider an Easter story. Maybe you've never heard that story read or preached through on Easter. Well, we've been slowly working our way through the book of the Bible called Luke, the gospel account according to Luke. Uh, It's one of the four gospel accounts that describe the life and ministry of Jesus. And I thought about taking a break from our walk through that book and do something that was a bit more Easter focused. Uh, But as I thought about it, the more this actually is a really, really good Easter sermon. So we're just going to pick up right where we have left off in the middle of Luke chapter 8, and next week we'll continue right on into verse 26. So we hope you can join us for next week as well. But if you haven't been with us, Luke is not one of Jesus' disciples, the guy who wrote this book. He is not a character in the story. But at some point after Jesus' death and resurrection, Luke heard about Jesus and his entire life was changed. Uh, We know that Luke was a doctor, he was a physician, but beyond that, we don't really know much else at all about him. But he says in the very first few verses of this book, of this gospel account, that he is undertaking to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished as testified by eyewitnesses. He is trying to arrange, he says, an orderly account. What he is setting out to do is to give a theological history based on trustworthy eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of what happened to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. 
But no history, no matter how we tell it, no matter how we understand history, uh, is impartial. Historians all have their own beliefs and assumptions. They highlight and emphasize things for a reason. And I'm just really appreciative that Luke comes right out and tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, what his purpose is for writing this book. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That what you receive and understand and believe about Jesus, you may have certainty that what uh, you have heard and received about him is actually trustworthy. It's true. I shared this in the first sermon that we considered together in Luke, but one commentator says that Luke is probing and then trying to answer many different kinds of questions. Questions like this. How did a Jewish movement become an offer of salvation for all people? For people in 2023 and Albuquerque, New Mexico. Do Gentiles, do non-Jews belong to this Messiah? Is Jesus, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why did he meet so much opposition from his countrymen? Even more than that, how does a crucified Messiah become the hope for all of humanity? How could an absent slain figure become the centerpiece for God's plan of salvation? Or in some, why should anyone respond to Jesus as the center of God's plan? And what is it that he calls us to do? What does a response to Jesus mean and look like? Virtually every single unit or section in Luke's gospel challenges us, challenges his readers to respond to Jesus. And what you've just heard Michael read here from Luke 8 is about as clear of a challenge from Luke to respond to Jesus as there is. Throughout chapter 7, we saw the kind of salvation that Jesus brings and offers. He brings a salvation uh, that includes the forgiveness of sins, a salvation that includes the removal of shame out of death and out of the self and into life and into belonging to God. Last week, we saw Jesus urge people to be careful how they hear. Don't just listen, but hear. Respond, receive the word of God. Why should you be careful to what Jesus says? Because he himself is the word that brings life. So it should be clear already that Jesus has the authority to make such a claim, to be careful how you hear my words. He's healed people of sicknesses. He has caused paralyzed people to walk. He has brought dead people to life, we've seen throughout this gospel account. But just in case, just in case you are still on the fence of whether or not you should or whether or not you must actually respond to Jesus, Luke gives us this very short story on this boat on the water. And so we're going to consider this story in two halves tonight, from two perspectives, thinking about Jesus the Savior, about what kind of Savior Jesus is, about the kind of salvation he brings. So we're going to first consider a Savior in the storm, and then secondly, in our second half, a Savior over the storm. So first of all, a Savior in the storm, or in the midst of the storm. Let's look at verse 22 again in Luke 8. Luke tells us, one day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. All right, Luke tells us that they're going to the other side of the lake, and this lake is the Sea of Galilee. I haven't yet shown you a map any time that we have been going through this gospel account. This is pretty small. You might not be able to see some of these words. This is the uh, Palestine region. Uh, Jerusalem is way down here in the south in the region of Judea. It's down by the the Dead Sea. And then the Jordan River is snaking up. Uh, North of Judea is Samaria. We will spend a lot of time thinking about Samaria in chapters 9 and 10 coming up. And then this 
reddish region, region at the top is Galilee, where you can see cities and towns like Capernaum and Cana and Nazareth. This is where we've been spending most of the majority of the narrative time in Luke's gospel up until this point, up in Galilee. And so Luke tells us that they are about to depart from Capernaum and they're going to cross the lake. They're going to cross the sea into the, a new region, a, a Gentile region, a place uh, where people are not um, loving or reading or are concerned about the law of God. These people are not making pilgrimages down to Jerusalem and to the temple. They are not the people of God. That's where Jesus is going. More on that next week. But uh, he is up in the north. Where he is, these to southerners in Jerusalem, to southerners down in Judea, Galilee, uh, people from the north is definitely how people like today in the American north think about people in the American south. Say like how people in New York or Boston think about people from Alabama or Mississippi. No offense if you're from Alabama or Mississippi. We just know what people in the north think about people from the south. Most likely because they've not spent much time there. They don't know people from there. They don't, can't imagine life there because they haven't spent time there. In the same way that people in the south haven't spent a ton of time up in Galilee. Like, why would you ever go there? There's nothing there. And so... Over here on the west side of the sea, Jesus is going to take his, what uh, Luke tells us, he's going to take his disciples on a boat across the lake. But not, Luke doesn't tell us he's going to take the 12, but he says the disciples, which we saw last week, very likely includes many more than the 12, very likely including the three, if not many more women that Luke pointed out last week, the true family of Jesus, who are now on a boat with him, and they are crossing to Gentile country. This is where Jesus is headed. And so they're crossing the lake. But the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. It's about eight times as big as Lake Abiquiu or Abiquiu Lake. But actually, this lake is not that much smaller than Elephant Butte. That makes it a very big lake, though. But it often gets called a sea because the weather can make it seem like you are out in the middle of an ocean squall. The lake is about 700 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. The only other lake that is lower than it is the Dead Sea, which this lake flows into. But then, and Joe, let me see another picture here. This is, this is a picture of the Dead Sea. There are cliffs surrounding it all around. And so oftentimes, you will get this uh, cool air rushing down over the cliffs and colliding with the warm lake water, and you get essentially ocean or sea-like storms on this lake. So they're crossing this lake, and they're probably making good time because several of these guys are professional fishermen, like we've thought about with some of these guys before. They have lived their entire lives on this lake. Very likely their fathers spent their entire lives on this lake, and their fathers' fathers, and their fathers' fathers' fathers. So left in good hands and likely exhausted from an enormous teaching and preaching schedule, Jesus, he goes to sleep, and Luke tells us, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling the boat. They were filling with water, and they were in danger. Now, for you and I, we uh, New Mexican land lovers, uh, if we were out in a first-century wooden fisher fishing boat, uh, I'm pretty sure, like, it wouldn't take much for us to get concerned. It might take a little bit of rain. It might take a little bit of up and down more than just the normal bobbing, and we would get really nervous. Why? Because we don't have any experiences with things like this, right? When things are new, we've never had any experiences. We think that it might be out of the ordinary, kind of like uh, the stories you hear from Ukraine right now. 
that in the first few weeks, anytime there was a siren or a warning of an incoming missile or something, everyone would be scrambling for shelter every time they heard this siren. But now, the stories that you hear, sirens are going off pretty regularly, and people just continue on with their work. People just continue on sitting on the outside cafe drinking coffee. It's something that they have become used to. And so all that to say, for these professional fishermen to get to the point where they are scared of a storm, this, is ha- this has to be a legit storm. They've been through many of these things, these things that would cause great fear in us. They're used to these kinds of storm, but storms. But Luke tells us that they were filling with water and they were in danger. In verse 24, they, the disciples, went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. They think they're going to die. But through all of this, Jesus is asleep. Just think about this. Howling winds. He sleeps through it. There is likely shouting and screaming from his disciples. The boat is crashing up and down. And Luke tells us that they are taking on water, meaning as Jesus is sleeping at the back of the boat, as Mark tells us, he possibly, if not probably, Jesus is taking like massive waves in his face. And he sleeps through the entire thing, maybe snoring, maybe like, as I'm told, my wife does to me when I'm snoring and she punches me and I just kind of roll over. Uh, Maybe Jesus is just rolling over, annoyed by these waves. Now, maybe he actually is really, really exhausted and he's just sleeping through through all of this. More likely, though, he knows who he is. He knows who his Father in heaven is. Often in John's gospel account, John tells us that Jesus would often say, my time has not yet come. Or John would say that Jesus would slip away from these authorities or that threat because his, the hour had not yet come. The time or the hour of his substitutionary death on the cross in Jerusalem as the Passover lamb to bring deliverance, to bring forgiveness, to bring grace to the world. So, no matter the waves, No matter the winds, Jesus comfortably sleeps because he comfortably trusts in the good care and provision of his Father. Or as he'll later later tell his disciples in Luke 12, teaching about anxiety, he says this to his disciples, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Or how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest, O you of little faith? Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Or, as the old saying goes, anxiety is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. Jesus, in the midst of an overwhelming storm, is absolutely the picture of steady faith in the face of potential danger and potential anxiety. Today, though, we are perhaps, if not likely, the most anxious people who have ever lived. Why is that? Why are we, 21st century Westerners, especially Americans, who are simultaneously some of the richest, some of the healthiest, some of the most physically secure people to have ever lived, also the most anxious. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to that, even some of you in this room. Many of you are actually perhaps quite unsure about 
where the money is going to come, for, come from for next month's expenses, or you're waiting on some potentially really, really serious or grave diagnosis. You are, there is some uncertainty about your wealth or your health. But societally, like we have so much disposable income that we can actually consider and think about and spend money on things like leisure and entertainment and travel, which is a very new thing in the history of humanity. We're not worried about the neighboring town or country invading us every spring, killing our families, taking everything we own. And most of us expect that we will live to 80 or 90 years. And yet, societally, we are crippled by anxiety. Why? Why? Two reasons, I think. First is that we are more and more every year and with every decade uh, getting more and more aware of the things of this world. We are so online. In generations past, when a tragedy in Massachusetts or France or Indonesia happened, we'd likely never know about it. Maybe months later in the newspaper or in books, we'd uh, hear about these things, but now we follow along as these things are happening live. So we are much more aware of global wickedness, global suffering, and global death, and then we can import that global suffering of the world into the local, even national and international politics, which we should absolutely care about, but realistically, we have very little or zero control or impact over this, and the suffering of the world can just keep us awake at night. But here's the thing, we are creatures. We are limited creatures. And the limitless information available to us on our phones have given us the illusion that we are then limitless, that the amount of information out there is limitless, so I am limitless. This is not true. Just an observation, the happiest people I know are people who are not on social media. The happiest people I know are mostly away from the internet. Just an observation. But also, while we in the American West have so much disposable income to blow on leisure and entertainment and travel, I think we have become convinced that the meaning of life and the goal of life should then therefore be leisure and entertainment and travel. It actually becomes a right that we demand, and the chief human good is to ensure those rights as a reality for everyone. And so, work or responsibilities or conflict, all of these can become barriers to me being able to live out the real meaning of my life. This is Tim Keller's point in his incredible book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, that we as Americans really just have no category for suffering because the meaning of life is actually maximal happiness. The meaning of life is maximal comfort. So when suffering inevitably comes for us, then we tailspin. But Jesus is not anxious. Here, in the face of the chaos of creation, later in the face of the wickedness of those who will seek to do him immense personal harm, he knows and he trusts that God is good. He knows that God knows that God sees, that God cares. This doesn't mean that he has some fatalistic view of the universe, that whatever happens is just going to happen, that he can just sleep through all the storms of life, that he can just remove himself from the sufferings of the world and trust God. We'll see that that's not true, even in the very next verse. We've already seen Jesus speak on behalf of the marginalized. We've seen Jesus move toward the weak and the sick, toward the hurting with compassion. But we've also seen Jesus 
withdraw from those who come to be healed so that he can actually be alone. That's weird. That's not what we expect to find from Jesus. That when those suffering come to him, sometimes he withdraws from them that he might be alone and pray. The meaning of Jesus' life was first to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. That the knowledge of the Father in heaven, intimacy with his Father in heaven was his first and chief goal in life. And the second, downstream but similar meaning of his life was to love his neighbor as himself. To when he encountered those who needed love, to love them. Passion for God, compassion for people. Can these meanings of life still be done and realized in the midst of suffering and loss? Passion for God and compassion for people? Yes, in fact, it's often through suffering and loss that we are actually able to have our grip loosened on the things that we think are important and then fixed onto God. And so that I can begin to see others not as obstacles to my happiness, but in serving them the means to my happiness. But here's the point in all of this. Jesus is who he is in the midst of the storm. His disciples are terrified for their lives, and while they may think that he is unaware and uncaring about their trouble, he is with them. Which now gets us to the second half of this short story. He is a savior in the storm, but he is also a savior over the storm. Verse 24, they went to him and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Now, don't let the familiarity of this story weaken how incredible it is. Now, in Albuquerque, in New Mexico, across the state, we've had some pretty incredible wind over the past month. But how do those windstorms usually end? Pretty slowly, right? They taper down and gradually end. The absolute crazy wind goes from like 40 or 50 miles an hour in one second uh, to then over the next hour or so, dipping down to 20 or 30 miles an hour. And then an hour later, it's down to, tw- to 10, and then it's a breeze. And then by the evening, you walk outside and you realize, oh, hey, the wind has stopped. But if you were outside and it was gusting, winds are, the trees are blowing like this, dust everywhere, things flying around town like we've experienced, and then in one second it stopped. You'd be like, that's weird. That doesn't make sense. That does not happen. But now imagine you're in a big field or a park where the wind is craziest. There's no trees or buildings to block it. And then it's going crazy, dust, trees, things blowing across the field, and then a guy walks out into the middle of the field, and he rebukes the wind, or as Mark tells us that Jesus says, he walks out into the middle of the field, and he says, peace, be still. If you saw that, you would need to know who this person is. He has power and authority that people do not have. But now, imagine you're not in a field, but you're in a boat, and one moment, you are convinced that you're going to die. Perhaps even you're an experienced fisherman, and you know that storms like these bring death. Storms like these bring capsizing and drowning. And then you go to this man that you have been following because of his authoritative teaching. He seems to know the mind and the will of God. He seems to understand the purpose and the role of the Old Testament scriptures and the law. He seems to know you. You've seen him perform miracles even bring people back from the dead. And he stands up after you've shaken him. 
He stands up on the stern of the boat, likely having to hang on the back sail rigging so he himself isn't tossed out because of the heavy crashing waves. And he stands up and he says, peace, be still. And in an instant, the sea of chaos and death becomes a bathtub. We'll come back to the beginning of verse 25 in a minute, but the second half of that verse says that the disciples were afraid. They marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? that he commands even winds and waters, and they obey him. They are, like we would be at the park in the field, astounded. Wind and water are not responsive characters with like decision-making agency. And yet they, like the demons and the fever that Jesus rebuked in chapter 4, they obey him. Creation obeys him. People, not even the most impressive magicians or illusionists have this kind of power. Have you seen that show Fool Us with uh, Penn and Teller where magicians come on and they try to come up with some amazing trick that Penn and Teller have never seen uh, and they try to get Penn and Teller, these experienced illusionists, uh, to not know how they just did that and they very rarely pull it off. Penn and Teller nearly always know how they did it because they've seen it all. If Penn and Teller were on this boat they would have no idea what just happened. They would be fooled. This does not happen. This is not an illusion. But the disciples are not just astounded at some like illusionist uh, human level. They are likely astounded also at a theological level. Throughout the Old Testament, but especially in the Psalms, God, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, who is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, Yahweh is praised for his power over the waters. Places like Psalm 29.3, where the psalmist says, the voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory, Yahweh, over many waters. Power over water is real power. Marcy and I were in a couple of coastal towns and villages in southwest England last month, where there are so many signs everywhere warning against the tides that if you go down these steps, or if you climb over these rocks to get to that beach, or if you park your car on this ramp, you're going to potentially die. Because when the tides come in, you're going to be stuck on these steps. When the tides come in, you're going to be stuck on that beach. When the tides come in, your car is going to be submerged and taken away. You can be trapped, taken out to sea. There is nothing you can do to stop the tide. There is nothing you can do to stop the waters. It is chaos. It is death-bringing. It is powerful. It is unstoppable. And yet, Yahweh shows himself, most notably in the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan River, to have power over the water. Psalm 107, possibly if not likely, a psalm that the disciples as good Jewish men and women would have had memorized, is about the goodness and about the faithfulness of God. That some people, the psalmist thinks about, some people go out metaphorically into desert wastes and being hungry, God feeds them. He provides for them. Some sit in darkness as prisoners in their rebellion against God, but he comes to them and breaks their bonds to bring freedom. But then the psalmist says this in verse 23 of Psalm 107, and these words here are for you on the screen. But the psalmist says this, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. 
They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. In the disciples' minds, in their imagination, in their understanding, only Yahweh, only God can make the storm be still. And here, while they have been following Jesus as an incredible teacher, as a miracle worker, maybe even as the future king of Israel, what is this? Again, don't let your familiarity with this story, even if you're a Christian, don't let your belief about Jesus as being fully God and fully man weaken the punch of this story for these people in this boat, now in this calm sea. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Luke does not record for us that they come to a clear answer to that question on this day. Though Peter will eventually speak for them in a climax moment in chapter 9, verse 20, that he, speaking on behalf of the disciples, believed Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God to come and deliver his people. But Luke leaves it hanging here, doesn't he? He, the, he tells us, the disciples ask, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? No answer. And then moving right along into verse 26, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. It seems that Luke wants his readers, as he himself is writing about these events many decades after the fact, he wants his readers to ask the same question that the disciples asked that same day. The same question that Penn and Teller might pragmatically ask in a field or in a boat. The same questions that the disciples would theologically ask in the boat. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? He is God. Creation obeys him. Why? Just like we thought about last week, that the word of God created the world and the word of God commands the world. Reflecting maybe on this very verse, the writer of Hebrews 1-3 would later say, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is God. And creation must respond to the word of its creator. The winds and the waves show this to be true. Creation responding to the word of their creator, but his disciples in the moment, and then every, every, every other person who would ever live after this moment, including every one of us in this room, are equally the creation of God. And equally, every single one of us, when the word of God comes to us, the word demands a response from us as well. It's been said that the most important question that every person Every person to have ever lived, the most important question that every person must ask and then therefore answer is this, who is Jesus of Nazareth? This is like question number one at the top of the flow chart of human existence. You are confronted with this question first, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Was, is Jesus of Nazareth the God-man? fully God, fully man, come to live a sinless life, 
come to die a substitutionary death on the cross for those who he would come for, to come for the forgiveness of their sins, that they might have eternal life? Yes or no? Is Jesus that or is he not? Then the flowchart continues in like a trillion fractal directions on both sides of that response. But that question, who is Jesus of Nazareth, is the fountainhead question of singular importance that stands before you today. There is a fork in the road. Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Is Jesus God? Is he the creator, the sustainer of the universe? Has he come for you to speak not only over the winds and the water, but over your, sinless, or your sinful and rebellious heart? To speak over your sinful and rebellious heart, peace, be still. I will forgive you and transform you. Over your anxieties and your fears and your doubts, peace, be still. I will be with you. Over your longings and your unmet desires, peace, be still. I will fill them. I will meet them. But if you will not come to me, he is saying to you today, if you will not trust me, if you will not belong to me, you will be left on your own in all of those things. In rejecting your creator and king, in rejecting the meaning of your life, you will be left in your sin and in your rebellion. You will be left in your anxieties and in your fears and your doubts. You will be left in your longings and in your unmet desires, both temporarily in emptiness and eternally in a place of judgment, in a place of chaotic, watery death. Two roads ahead, two ways to live. How will you respond? How will you walk? and follow. But let's circle back. Let's read this again, because Jesus's initial response to the disciples in verse 25, if you were listening to Michael read this, or perhaps you were reading this before this week, doesn't Jesus's initial response feel a little harsh to the disciples? Let's just read it again in verse 22. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? This feels harsh. After all, in their fear, they didn't just try to do things on their own. They rightly went to wake up Jesus. If anyone can do something about this, it's him. And sure enough, they're coming to Jesus and they're waking him. This is what actually brought about their salvation. And yet Jesus says, where's your faith? Jesus is likely confronting their fear that didn't align with his own identity, with his own confident faith in God. Remember, why could Jesus sleep through the up and down and the waves of, in his face? Because he knew who he was, the anointed son of God. He knew where he was going, to the cross in Jerusalem for the forgiveness of sins. He knew the character and the wisdom of God, always good, always right. So, hey guys, why are you freaking out? I am safe for the time being in God's good care. If that's true, then you are safe. But in response to their coming to him, he responds and he reacts. He responds and he reacts to them. This is actually the model of prayer. 
of our coming to Jesus in trust and acting and expecting him to act. But this is why I think Jesus actually rebukes them. It's not clear that they're actually asking something of him, that they're, as we might think of it, praying. Luke doesn't make clear that they're asking him to actually do something. They just come and they wake him up and say, hey, we're going to die. They are powerless. They are answerless. They have nowhere to go but to death. And within the year, they'll find themselves in a similar situation where Jesus is in more than just a deep sleep. He is dead. In the days immediately before this storm in Luke 8, Jesus had been healing and teaching and they were experiencing with Jesus like a growing uh, social reputation and a growing celebrity that they were um, behind and a part of. Everything was awesome. But then now out of nowhere, they were just crossing the sea and out of nowhere, chaos and hopelessness in like a couple of hours from awesome to we are going to die. And in the same way, just days before Jesus' death, he was welcomed into Jerusalem, as well as the disciples behind him. He was praised and and hailed as king, entering the city. Everything was awesome, and it's really happening now, isn't it? But then, seemingly out of nowhere, out of nowhere, chaos and hopelessness. Jesus is gone. He is dead. The disciples are now on their own. But on a Sunday morning, he awakes. His eyes open. He inhales. He sits up, and he neatly folds a a rag that was over his face, and he sets it down beside him. And he swings his legs around, and he stands. And he, or the, the angels serving at his pleasure, roll the stone away, and he walks out. Now the firstborn of a new world order, a new Adam over a new creation, the firstborn, the victor over the grave, the victor over death, the victor over sin. And in Luke 24, verse 36, as the disciples have seen the tomb, the empty tomb, but they are confused. They're still hopeless. They, they don't understand what has happened. They're asking, where's Jesus? What has happened to Jesus? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? Jesus appears to them, and he says, peace be with you. And again, like on the boat, they were afraid, and they said to him, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I. Touch me and see. He is risen. He is the Savior with you in whatever storms you find yourself in today. He is the Savior for you with power and authority over whatever storms you find yourself in today. Is Jesus God? Yes or no? Is God good? Yes or no? Do we have to fend for ourselves? Will he live? Will he act? Will he speak on our behalf? Yes or no? He will. Over the winds, over the waters, over sin, over death. Whereas Paul would later reflect in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. Everybody, he is risen indeed.
He has broken the bonds of sin. He has broken the bonds of death. He is God. He reigns victoriously. He has awoken from his slumber to calm the seas. He has awoken from his slumber to calm sin and death forever. He is the right man at the helm of the cosmos today, reigning and ruling in wisdom, in kindness, in patience, and mercy, and he is welcoming you into his kingdom. Is Jesus God? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? This is a question that ought to sit with us for the next week or so. It ought to sit with us for the rest of our lives, but it ought to sit with us for the next week. This is a good question to just let sit. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Sit on this. Let's pray through this question together. Let's talk through this question together. And let's come again next Sunday to learn more of his work, more of his character, more of his ministry, more of why he has come and what he has come for next Sunday as we do this all again. But until then, let's pray for his help. Our Lord and King Jesus, you are risen and exalted. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Our Father, you have given this kingdom to your Son, and we are so glad, so um, thankful to live as subjects in the kingdom. God, the Spirit, we are so thankful to be walking with you, to be walking uh, with you in us, that we might know you, love you, and serve you, O triune God, in the redemption that you have accomplished on our behalf at the cross. And we pray that you would calm our fears, calm our anxieties, that we would be a people of increasing faith, that we would take the word of Jesus to be certain and true, and we would bank our entire lives on this fact, that we would bank our entire lives on an empty tomb, that Jesus, you are alive, that you are victorious, and that you have lived and died for us, your people, that we might be your body, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God, the creator of this universe who loves us and cares for us. We love to be your people. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus' powerful new creation name. In his name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.